right. Well, good morning, everybody, again. Am I like the third person or fourth person to say good morning? Um, happy Fourth of July weekend. All the, all the high school and middle school kids in here are like, wait, we're halfway through the summer? <laughs> um, <laughs> all the parents are like, shh, don't, don't wear them out yet. Uh, but no, it is so good to like be worshiping with you guys this morning. And for those of you joining us online, we are glad that you are spending your time uh, with us as we worship the Lord Jesus this morning. Uh, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 8. We're in our Summer of Psalms uh, series. And so every week we encourage folks to open up their Bibles, whether you've got a physical copy or you've got a Bible app on your phone. We just want you to have a Bible uh, in front of you. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there are some on uh, the resource table out there in the lobby. Um, but otherwise, we will still have the words on the screen. Uh, if you're joining us online and you don't have a Bible but you want one, uh, just reach out to us at riverwood at weareriverwood.org, and we will be more than glad to hook you up with a copy. Um, now, I said we're going to be in Psalm 8, and as the worship gathering director here at Riverwood, I love that we're going through uh, the book of Psalms for the summer. Uh, but in case me being like the music guy wasn't like a dead giveaway, uh, I want to explain a little bit of why this is so uh, meaningful to me. Uh, the Psalms contain very many distinct yet interconnected uh, prayers and songs um, that have helped God's people for generations uh, worship Him rightly. They help us to lift our praises to Him. They help us uh, by giving a, a voice to our joys, our, our pains, and our griefs. Uh, they lead us to thank Him, and ultimately they highlight God's glory. I would also go to say that the Psalms is probably the most approachable book in the Bible, because as we read the Spirit-inspired words of the writers, there's this deep sense that as God met them, He meets us too. The Psalms were the songs of God's people throughout history. So not only do we get to experience uh, a personal relationship with God on that level, but we get to do so on a historical and traditional level as well, in community with saints past and present. So this morning, let's worship God together through his word as we go to our passage, Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
So before we dig uh, too much into the words and meaning of Psalm 8, I want to share a little bit of the uh, surrounding context of this passage just for us to get a better idea of what's actually being said here. Now in the Bible, there's this massive scroll of Hebrew poetry known as the Psalms. If you have a physical Bible, if you split it down the middle, you will likely end up in the book of Psalms. Um, And the Psalms are actually comprised of five books. Uh, Psalm 8 is in book 1, and it's in group 2. And we're actually going to be just looking at uh, the first two groups. Um, And so group 1 is a two-part poem. That is Psalms 1 and 2. Now Psalms 1 and 2 are about God's promise to deal with evil, with violence, with the injustices of the world by raising up an anointed king for Israel. And actually, the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach. Just got rid of some plum there. Um, which you might actually know that word from its original, from its Greek form uh, that we hear around Christmas time, Messiah. Well, anyway, this refers back to the promise that God had made to David, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 8, in which God had said a future king, a Messiah, would come from his line. In Psalm 2, it says that the king, this future king, would confront the wicked rulers of the world and become a powerful, protective fortress for those who take refuge in him. In the next grouping, we have Psalms 3 through 14. And so, uh, you, you see, in the middle of that is Psalm 8. And that's very instruction, uh, important to the structure of group 2. You see, in Psalms 3 through 7, it reflects on David's past when he was powerless and had to run and hide from his enemies. Here, David is crying out to God to, to rescue him, to deliver him, to restore him to his role as king. And in the latter part, Psalms 9 through 14, David is joined by a group of people known as the poor, the innocent, the helpless, and the afflicted. And like David, they're oppressed by wicked rulers. And likewise, they they cry out to God to confront the violence that is being done to them and to restore all that has been taken from them. But despite David and these people being powerless, and even seemingly insignificant. God chooses to work through them and rule the world, which is what Psalm 8 is all about. So in verse 1 of Psalm 8, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your name above the heavens. And if you notice the end in verse 9, we see that same opening line. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, what David is doing here is he's using a literary technique known as an inclusio, which signals to us what the song is all about by bookending the psalm with the main idea. The majesty and magnificent power of God displayed throughout creation. And even in David's saying, Uh, your name. He's referring to God's uh, reputation, his glory, his power. 
He's saying, God, your power and your glory is known throughout the whole earth. Everybody knows it. But what can we know about this psalm according to the surrounding context? Remember, at at this point, uh, David and the people are not exactly experiencing the height of God's power right now in the midst of being pursued and plundered. What's he doing here? Well, it continues in verse 2. David says that out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, the Hebrew words for you have established, probably going to butcher this, yesadta oz, can be referred to as basically God setting up the foundation of a fortress. Though in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew, this phrase is actually translated to give you praise. So you might be thinking, okay, so God, let me get this straight for a second. You're going to use babies and their babbling nonsense to silence your enemies and put them to shame. Yeah. Again, David is hitting on this note that God often subverts our worldly human expectations of what is strong, what is beautiful, what is powerful, and what is reasonable. He flips it on its head and he uses it to accomplish so much more than we could fathom. So not only is God going to establish his strength through the weak and lowly, but his praises are going to be sung by some of the most vulnerable among us. And so we'll come back to verse 2 in a little bit. He continues in verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. So I want to ask everybody a question. Have you ever felt small? Have you ever felt insignificant? Like, you know, maybe someone put you down or someone embarrassed you in front of, like, your peers, or maybe you, like... Let's say you moved from a small podunk town in Iowa uh, and moved to a big city uh, going from a culture where everybody knows your name to a culture where nobody even cares that you're there. Have you ever felt small? Now, if we look at this verse, what does this verse remind us of? Well, David is actually hearkening back to the creation account in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you know. Um, But I want us to look particularly at Genesis 1, verses 14 through 18. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, 
the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set over them, set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Now, as we read this Genesis text with Western eyes, you know, we're probably thinking, okay, so this is retelling how God, you know, uh, created the heavens, you know, placing the stars and the moon, in, you know. So what? what? What does that necessarily have to do here? Well, some biblical scholars actually think that um, the creation account that we find in Genesis could have also been read by its ancient Near Eastern contemporaries as a polemic, uh, a strong-worded argument or denouncement against the surrounding nation's gods. Um, Dr. Bill T. Arnold of Asbury Theological Seminary writes, in religious thought of the ancient world, the sun and moon were leading deities, often the most important gods of the pantheons of the ancient Near East. The use of greater light and lesser light avoids the Hebrew words for sun and moon, which could have been taken for the ordinary names for the deities, Shemesh and Yarich. These great subjects worshipped in the ancient world have instead become physical objects of God's creative work. Ancient religion was almost always chained to the natural rhythms of time, irrevocably associated with the personification of sun, moon, and stars. But these personified powers have been demoted in Genesis to mere artifacts, lamps rising and setting on the command of the Creator. So remember, David and the people are not immediately experiencing God's power right now. I mean, historically, if we look back at uh, the Old Testament for generations before and after this point in David's life, God's people were on occasion either enslaved or exiled under other nations, which could have also spread the narrative that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, had fallen or that he had even just abandoned his people. However, according to Psalm 8, despite the affliction that David has experienced, even in the middle of all of it, he was able to recount how God is far greater than the powers that be. And not only is God far more infinitely powerful, his heart is also far more intimately tender toward us. From the mighty hand of God, the same hands, the same fingers that delicately placed the stars and the moon in the sky and throughout the cosmos. These are the same fingers that formed Adam from the dirt. The same hands that intricately and sovereignly wove us together in our mother's womb that are incredibly mindful of and deeply care for us. So no matter how small or insignificant you may feel in the great expanse of the universe, God has placed His image 
in you. A relatively tiny, fragile creature. And he loves you endlessly. And you are more important to him than the most mind-blowingly astounding galaxies. And that's what we get from Hebrew poetry. Isn't that beautiful? And so David goes on saying, yet you have made him, he's, he's talking about humanity, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And again, he's, David's using this uh, language all the way back from Genesis 1 of being created by God himself and being his image bearers. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. I want, I want us to take notice in that passage where, where God is literally handcrafting humanity that it's actually framed a bit like poetry or even a song with a sort of rhythmic feel and stanza to it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what's that doing here? Like, we're, we're just reading in the, in the beginning of the creation account and then just suddenly a poem is dropped right in. Well, while the Hebrew language does not employ scientific terminology or philosophical vocabulary, it presented nearly every word with a concrete and physical meaning, though it was poetic in nature. That doesn't mean that every instance of Hebrew in the Old Testament 
that, uh, that it's a poem and that we can't trust it or we can't take it seriously or, or we can't you know, see it as legitimate. But the advantage here with using Hebrew is that it actually makes the Word of God nearly universally accessible. If you've read philosophers like Hegel or Diogenes, which I'm guessing most of us haven't, uh, you probably aren't going to understand them. They're not a walk in the park to read, <laughs> uh, unless it is literally your job to understand philosophers. Um, or unless you're a scientist, you're not even going to be able to understand some of the most prestigious, uh, prestigious medical journals from the past 50 years. And I'm just talking about the journals written in English. Hebrew, on the other hand, was accessible to just about everybody, not just to men, but to women, children, the illiterate, uh, the common, simple-minded, everyday person. And biblical scholars would likewise note that the Hebrew that we find in the Old Testament is also adaptable to about every human emotion imaginable, from the most delicate to the most energetic. And so as we look at that Genesis narrative, God so deeply cares for us that while he was creating human beings for the very first time, he could not help but recite poetry. In fact, it's actually no wonder that um, when God introduces Adam and Eve to each other, Adam's first recorded words are literally a poem. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I know that's not like the poetry that you know we're used to where it rhymes at the end of every... Uh, stanza, but, but come on, guys, it, it is still, it's poetry, okay? <laughs> I digress. Um, but God's affections for his image bearers are so tangible that our relationship is often woven with song. So how many of, of you couples, either married or dating, you have your song. I'm getting some looks. I see some of the gals nodding, going, mm-hmm. And some of the guys are like, hmm, nervous. <laughs> Don't let her know you forgot your song. Uh, all that is to say is that God is that personal that God is that intimate and more. But in Psalm 8, David is not only pointing to you know, God's power over everything or even just his tenderhearted care towards us, but also how God has made us like him. He says in verse 6, You have given him, humanity, dominion, over the works of your hands, you've put all things 
under his feet. And I know for some of you, even just hearing the word feet is like, okay, you're being weird. Uh, But this actually, in verses 5 through 8, it's talking about how God has made us like himself in that he shares his authority. Not in that we have the same exact degree of power and authority as God. But as one of my uh, former professors, Dr. Andrew Schmutzer uh, from the Moody Bible Institute, uh, said to the effect that God has made us his underkings. That not only are we bearing his image around and throughout the world, but he has made us his vice regents. He's made us his representatives. That however we live and interact and engage with and throughout God's creation, we are to do so with the same shared authority, the same protection, the same care that God would have. We are to rule like God would, despite us being feeble, fragile human beings. So that's Psalm 8. Where do we go from here? Well, as we've read in this poem, it shows us how God's love is on display and how he displays that. He displays his power through elevating the powerless so that he can rule through them. So whether it be uh, through babbling infants or lowly people, God loves to choose the weak, like David and the afflicted ones. God chooses these kinds of people to set the pattern for the Messiah that is presented in Psalms 1 and 2. And that Messiah will rule over everything. Now, if you still have your Bibles open, let's turn to uh, Matthew 21 in the New Testament. Here's the passage where we read about uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, when you think of you know, a king making his grand entrance into a city, what, what comes to mind? Maybe, maybe that scene from Aladdin? Uh, where, you know, there's a whole parade going down the street where, you know, horns are blasting so the whole entrance is made known citywide. Uh, flags are just being waved in the air. You know, maybe uh, the king is being carried in on a throne of sorts or even, you know, um, or if the king is actually a uh, war general, maybe he's riding in on his war horse to ransom the oppressed from their oppressors. You see, Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the king who is going to confront Israel's leaders. But instead of a war horse, he rides in on a donkey. And instead of you know fanfare and flags being waved by uh, Jerusalem's finest. It's palm branches in the hands of children, the poor, and oppressed. 
And Jesus does so in this particular fashion because he's going to ransom his people from their sins and rescue them from the wages of sin, which is death and eternal separation from God. And so, as we continue in Matthew 21, uh, as Jesus enters and cleanses the temple, he, you know, that's the famous where he's like overturning the tables of the money changers because they are actually doing this for profit and personal gain. As the blind and crippled are coming to him for healing, the chief priests and the scribes in the temple are seeing all of this, and then they hear some children in the temple shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And so they're probably thinking, this is outrageous. This is blasphemy. So they they go up to Jesus and they say, hey, do you hear what these kids are saying? Do you hear what's coming out of their mouths? And Jesus replies, yes. Have you never read Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies have you prepared praise. And in case I have not made it that obvious, he's referring to Psalm 8, verse 2. That God is enthroned on the praises of his people, especially from the least of these. That he is worthy of Praise, because even though we sinned and turned and ran, Jesus took our sin upon the cross. He suffered, he bled, and he died in our place for our sin. And three days later, he rose to life again, victorious over our sin, ultimately redeeming us for a new life in him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. God, we confess our sin before you. We know that we have rebelled against you and that we deserve the just punishment of your wrath. But we know that because Jesus lived blameless and sinless, because he died in our place as our ultimate sacrifice, because he rose again to life and glory, you are a God who cares so deeply for us, and you are a God who redeems his people as his prized possession. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that we would bring you praise. Help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in your atoning work through your son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to move into a time of worshiping God through communion. Um, If you are a Jesus follower here with us this morning, uh, we would invite you to participate by worshiping with us in this way. Um, You'll see to the left and to the right 
that there are tables uh, with the elements in them. The cup that has both the bread and the juice. The bread that represents the body of Christ that was nailed to the cross in our place for our sin so that we could be reconciled in relationship with our Heavenly Father. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sin. That not only by it are our sins washed away, but we are actually washed clean and purified, white as snow. If you're here with us this morning and, and you're at a place where you feel like, I don't, I don't feel like this is a story I can, I can believe. I, I don't know if I can identify with this. First of all, we are so glad that you are here with us this morning, that you have decided to spend your time uh, with us as we worship together. We love you, and we would actually invite you to abstain from taking the elements. We don't want you to feel pressure to uh, take uh, the bread and the cup and try to be a part of something that you, you can't identify with. Instead, we would ask you to consider, to ponder um, what has been shared this morning, what the songs have declared this morning. And if you feel like perhaps God is stirring something in your heart, that he is drawing you to himself in a deeper relationship, we would love to, to help walk alongside you in this um, you could approach myself or Aaron or any of the elders. We want to pray for you. If this is the day where you have your spiritual birthday, where you are born again in Jesus Christ, we want to we honor that. We want to celebrate that. And we want you to know that you are not alone in that. So let us take communion together.